Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you, George. Good morning again, WCC. One of the things I was thinking about as we say the Lord's Prayer every week and as we memorize Scripture every week, one of the great things about that is the Lord uses that to really drive it into our hearts. And I was hearing, hearing again the story of 9-11 with uh, Todd Beamer. You remember this story, the guy, Let's Roll? One of the things he did before he got a group of people to go attack the terrorists on that plane was he was on a phone conversation and very calmly he was talking with someone with a friend and he said the 23rd Psalm and he said the Lord's Prayer with them. So that's my prayer for us, is that all of us, we're going to face difficult times, and we're going to face hardships and scary things, and my prayer is that the Word of God would just be so much in our hearts that we can just, you know, we can just pray that Lord's Prayer and cry out to Him. We're praying God's Word back to Him when we do that, which I just think is awesome. So that's one of the reasons we do that every week. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to look at a couple of of, uh, chapters today. Um... We're continuing a little sermon series on the Lord's Supper, and we're instituting some changes in how we take the Lord's Supper, and I just thought it would be helpful to preach on this issue. It's been helpful for me to study this again, um, and, and I would say this too, I know as I'm going through, I'm going to go through a lot of stuff today, it's really fast, some of it's very complex. I would ask you, if you get confused about anything, one of the things I'd suggest is I'd encourage you to listen to the sermon again online. I'm going to be giving you a lot of stuff, and some of the stuff you might not be familiar with. So I would encourage you, like I said, if you get confused, listen to the sermon again. The two things I want to talk about today, really, the big, the big issues are what Jesus means when he says the phrase, and we read it every week, when he says, this is my body. That's what I want us to think about. What does Jesus mean when he says, this is my body? And the second one, it goes along with it. But what actually happens during the Lord's Supper? What what does the Bible teach, I think, about what actually happens when we partake of the Lord's Supper? So those are the big things I want us to think about. Last week, we looked at some basic doctrine about the Lord's Supper and how we should come to the Lord's Supper with a thankful attitude and where we remember Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. And when we come to the table, we are to think about how Jesus is going to return one day. So that's what we talked about last week. This week, we're going to examine, like I said, exactly what happens during the Lord's Supper. And the argument I'm going to make, when I say argument, I'm a lawyer. I don't mean I'm being argumentative. I mean like I'm making the case for it. The, the argument I'm going to make is that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. It's a means of grace. It's a, a, a channel of grace where Christ meets with us in a special way during the Lord's Supper. Okay, So that's what we're going to look at. The Lord's Supper is sometimes called an ordinance. An ordinance, that's a good way to describe it because Jesus has ordained it. He has established it. Uh, You can also call it a sacrament. That's fine too. It's a sacred meal. It's It's a sacred thing where Jesus works through this in a spiritual way. So I'm fine with either ordinance or sacrament. I don't get uptight about either either term. Uh, I wanted to mention this, the other ordinance or sacrament established by our Lord Jesus is baptism. Baptism. Jesus commanded his church to make disciples and to baptize them. 
So baptism is the visible sign that a person has entered into the kingdom of God. So I just wanted to mention this, although this sermon is about the Lord's Supper, I'm just thinking about the ordinances, and I'm guessing that there are people in our church who love Jesus Christ, they put their faith in Him, they want to live for Him, but they haven't been baptized. And if that's the case, I just want to stress, if you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized, then you need to be baptized. Jesus commands his followers to be baptized. It's a command. So if you love Christ, you're trusting in him, but you haven't been baptized, you need to fix that, okay? And if you want to, if you want to do that, come talk to me or one of the church leaders. Again, I just wanted to kind of throw that out there as we're thinking about ordinances and and sacraments. All right, let's talk about the Lord's Supper. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and 24. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and 24, we, we read this every week. And Paul writes this in verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. I'm going to stop there. Last week I mentioned the fact that during the Protestant Reformation there were lots of discussions, there were lots of debates about various theological issues, but there was one issue that was more discussed and debated over, surprisingly, than any other, and that was the Lord's Supper. And in the debates and discussions about the Lord's Supper, do you know what statement was debated the most? It's right here. It's Jesus saying this statement, this is my body. This is my body. So we're going to talk about that. But the reformers debated this statement. So that's what I want us to think about. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took that bread in his hands and he held it up and he broke it and he's holding it and he says, this is my body. So what does he mean by that? I'm going to give you a few views of the way the church has understood this. The Roman Catholic view is this, and it's often called transubstantiation. Trans means to change or transform, substantiation, substance. So the Roman Catholic view is transubstantiation. It teaches this, Rome teaches this, that when the priest institutes the words of sacrifice, the sacrifice of the mass, when the priest is holding the bread during mass and when he says the words, this is my body, the teaching of Rome is that the substance of the bread actually turns into the physical body of Jesus Christ. We also read in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 25, if you look there, that Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So Rome also teaches that during the mass, the substance of the wine miraculously turns into the physical body of Christ, the physical blood of Christ, I mean. So Rome teaches that during the mass, that Jesus is being sacrificed. In fact, they call it the sacrifice of the Mass, that Jesus is being sacrificed during the Mass. Now, I'll say this. I've got all sorts of problems with that. I I have Roman Catholic friends that I love, and I appreciate their faithfulness on some things, but Rome's teaching on this. I've got so many problems. I don't want to get into it too much, but I'll just say this, that Jesus has already paid the sacrifice on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it's finished. (laughs) It's over. There's no more sacrifice to be made. And then afterwards, Jesus was resurrected in a physical glorified body. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Jesus sat down on the throne. He's ruling and reigning right now. Jesus is the sovereign king of the universe. He's the resurrected king. He's not dying over and over again. He'll never die again. He can't die. He cannot die. 
So that's, why, that's one of the reasons why I have this huge problem with the Roman Catholic view of the sacrifice of the Mass. Again, the Catholic view is called transubstantiation. It's a complicated teaching, basically based on a lot on Aristotle's teaching, on substance, and they get into all these, these issues about what is substance and all this. But it's a complicated teaching, but again, that they teach that the substance of the bread and the substance of the wine turn into the physical body and blood of Christ. Rome teaches that, that a miracle happens every time the Mass is performed. Actually, there's two miracles. One miracle is that the bread turns into the body of Christ, and then the other miracle is that the bread still looks like bread. <laughs> so there's, there's two miracles going on there. When the priest holds up the bread, they're claiming that two of these things are happening, okay? So that's what Rome teaches, this double miracle of the Mass. Remember, we're thinking about Jesus' statement, this is my body. Another view of this statement of the Lord's Supper is the Lutheran view from Martin Luther. Lutherans don't like the term, but it's, the term is usually called consubstantiation. Con is with. So with substance or consubstantiation. And they use this phrase, they say, during the Lord's Supper, the physical body of Jesus is, and here's the phrase, in, with, and under the bread. Again, it's a very complex view, but the view is that the physical, I'm going to keep stressing, the physical body and blood of Jesus, that's their teaching, are somehow here with the bread and the wine. And the reason Luther struggled with this, one, he came from Roman Catholic view. He's been taught this his whole life. But again, it's Jesus' statement, this is my body. The Latin is hoc est corpus meum. Hoc is this, est is Corpus, body, mayum is mine. So, so Luther is saying over and over again, hoc est corpus mayum. So they're having these discussions about what's happening with the Lord's Supper. They're claiming that Jesus' physical body is there. And Luther, to prove his point, just kept pounding the table and saying, hoc est corpus mayum. He just kept screaming this over and over again, hoc est corpus mayum. This is my body. That's how Luther, apparently Luther thought that he could prove that, that Jesus' body was there by just if he yelled it enough or something. But an interesting bit of history too. Listen to the words. Listen to this. Hoc est corpus, ma'am. Hoc est corpus. Hocus corpus. What the masses heard, the people heard when they heard hocus corpus, they heard hocus pocus. They knew some sort of magic or something was happening up there. They weren't given any teaching, and so the word hocus-pocus started coming to have to do with, with magic. Anyway, so Luther's view, as I said, in the Lutheran view, is that during the Lord's Supper, Jesus' physical body is somehow in with and under the bread and the wine. Again, his physical body is present in the supper. And speaking of wine, and I don't know if I should get into this or not, but I'm going to anyway. I'm, I know I'm stepping out on a ledge. But I want to say this, it's clear that Jesus drank wine. His disciples drank wine, and the early church drank wine. In fact, Jesus, if you want to look at it in Jesus on your own in Luke 7:34, Jesus was accused of being a drunk because he drank wine. Okay? So, now Jesus never got drunk. Drunkenness is a sin. Jesus never sinned. He never got drunk, but he did drink wine. Also, again, I'm not going to get into a huge thing about it, but the word wine in the Bible means wine. It doesn't mean water with some wine in it. In fact, the word, in the, the word wine in the Bible also doesn't mean grape juice. 
Pasteurized grape juice wasn't even invented until the 1800s. Also, if you've ever done a, a study of this, you probably haven't, but most of us have not, but if you've done a study of this, there, in the Bible, there are approximately 250 references to like wine and alcohol. Only 40 of them are negative, and they're talking about things like drunkenness and the potential dangers of alcohol. So I just say this, that, that it's clear that drunkenness is a terrible sin. It's awful. It ruins people's lives. It ruins families' lives. Drunkenness is a sin, but, but drinking alcohol is not a sin. In fact, usually if you read through the scriptures, what you find is there are approximately 150 references to wine as a good thing, as a sign of God's blessing, as something to be received with thanksgiving. Wine is often portrayed in the Bible as a symbol of joy. Now, there's an argument made from some radio preachers who don't like drinking. They try to make the argument in the Bible that wine was so watered down that you really couldn't even get drunk on it. That's simply not true. It's just not true. If you've ever read the account of Noah getting drunk, there's no indication that he's drinking 15 gallons of this stuff. I mean, it's wine is wine. Wine has the same, been the same way made for, for thousands of years. In the, in the context of the First and Second Corinthians, folks at the Lord's Supper were actually getting drunk. And what's interesting to me is Paul doesn't say don't use wine during the Lord's Supper. That's not his solution to this. Okay? So the reason I'm telling you all this is it's clear that the early church used wine in the Lord's Supper. And my view is this. uh, If we want to be biblical, and the elders are discussing this, but if we want to be biblical, I think we need to offer wine at the Lord's Supper. Now, I want to be sensitive to people's conscience, so I want to make grape juice available. I want to do that. And we're going to continue talking more and more about this. We don't want to rush into something. But my hope is that in the near future we can at least offer wine at the Lord's Supper. Again, we're talking about that for the future. All right, enough of that. Back to Jesus' statement where he said, this is my body. What did Jesus mean when he said it? I'll, I'll keep it simple, but Jesus was using metaphorical language when he says this. The bread and the wine are a symbol of the body and blood of Jesus. We use this language all the time. If I hold up a phone, I've got a picture on it, and if I say, hey, this is my wife, do I mean the phone is my wife? If I say, this is my daughter, or this is my son, do I mean the phone is my son or daughter? Do, do I mean that the phone miraculously turns into? It's the strangest thing to me why Roman Catholics and Lutherans have come up with this. We use this kind of language all the time when we use this metaphorical language. When Jesus held the bread in his hand, And he said, this is my body. What do you think the disciples thought? Do you think they thought that the bread in Jesus' hands, that bread right there, do you think that they thought that bread must have veins and capillaries and skin? Do you think they had that thought at all? That thought never crossed their mind. Honestly, it's very strange how the history of this happened. But Jesus meant that it was a sign. It was a symbol. It's metaphorical language pointing to his broken body. Jesus was showing that he would die on a cross. He was about to shed his blood for his people. He was showing that he was about to die as a substitute for his people. So when he says, this is my body and this is my blood, those are symbolic terms. He was speaking metaphorically. Jesus made statements like this all the time. He said this. He said, I am the vine. When Jesus said, I am the vine, do we expect like leaves to be growing out of his shoulders? Or he said, I am the door. Do we expect like hinges to be here? Again, Jesus is talking in this way. We speak in this way all the time. So it's, it, 
as I said, it's very strange to me that Roman Catholics and Lutherans are so dogmatic in saying that the bread Jesus was holding like turned into his own body. So that's one problem I have with the view that, that the bread turns into the physical body of Jesus. Also, and again, this is a complicated thing, but there's a theological problem. It's a Christological problem. Christology is a study of who Christ is. Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God. He's not half man and half God. He's not 75% man and 25% God. He's fully man and he's fully God. He's God. He has a divine nature. And he's fully man. He has a human nature. Now think about this. Jesus in his humanity is not here right now. Jesus is a human. He has a human body. In his humanity, he is not here right now. Jesus has a resurrected, glorified body. He has a body. He will always be human. And in his humanity, Jesus is in one place. He's in heaven. So he's in a physical place. So in his humanity, Jesus is in heaven. And he's not anywhere else in his humanity. So when Roman Catholics teach that, that Jesus in his humanity is all over the world as the Mass is being taken, I think it shows that there is a faulty understanding of Jesus' humanity. Now, as I said, we also understand that Jesus is fully God. He is divine. And in his divine nature, Jesus is everywhere. So, so God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. Jesus is God. So in his divine nature, Jesus is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But in his humanity, Jesus is not everywhere. He's in one place in heaven. That's another reason why I'm convinced the Roman Catholics and Lutherans get it wrong. Because they're saying that Jesus in his physical body, in his humanity, is in lots of places. And that's simply not a true understanding of Jesus' humanity. Now, I want to stress something. One of the things I do appreciate about Roman Catholics and Lutherans is this. At least they take the Lord's Supper very seriously. They take the Supper very seriously and they believe that Christ is really present during the Supper in a special way. And I agree with that. They understand that something very special is happening in the supper. And on that, we can agree. Finally, I want to give you this. Again, I'm trying to lay some stuff out there, but there's another view of the Lord's Supper. It was a view taught by a guy named Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli. Ulrich Zwingli, and he taught what is called the memorial view. And the memorial view basically says that in the Lord's Supper, all we're doing is remembering Jesus. That's it. The memorial view says that nothing special happens during the supper. It's just a memorial. And I disagree with that. As I'm about to show, I'm convinced that the Lord's Supper is more than a memorial. It's a means of grace. So I'm convinced, and this is what I'm going to try to present, I'm convinced that during the supper, when we take the elements, that Christ is present spiritually in a special way. Again, Jesus is not here in his humanity. But he is here in his divine nature in a unique way. So let's look, at, let's look at 1 Corinthians 10 now. So flip over to 1 Corinthians 10. And I'll give you the context. If you'll look at verse 14 of, of 1 Corinthians 10, this kind of sets the context of what Paul is talking about. He says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So he's talking about idolatry in the church at Corinth. From, in, there's a huge section in 1 Corinthians from 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, all the way through verse, chapter 11, verse 1. 
Paul is dealing with idolatry and he's dealing with an issue I'll talk about in a second of food offered to idols. Okay? So he's talking about idolatry and food offered to idols. This issue of food offered to idols is a totally bizarre topic for us, frankly, because we don't deal with this. But I think if you understand it, I think you begin to understand why I'm going to talk about it having to do with the Lord's Supper. But here's what was happening during this time in history. In many Roman cities and provinces, there were these temples set up to various gods. So in Ephesus, there was this huge temple to the goddess Artemis, also known as Diana. In another town, you may have a temple dedicated to Apollo or Zeus or whatever. And at these temples, they had these these worship services where they offered animal sacrifices to the gods. This is another strange thing about it. Many times the temples were essentially, because they're killing these animals all the time, many times the, the temples were essentially butcher shops. So if you wanted to eat meat, if you wanted to go buy meat, you couldn't go to Publix or Kroger or John's or whatever. You had to go to one of these temples because that was the local butcher shop. So Paul is teaching this. Boiling it down, Paul says this, if the temple butcher shop is selling meat and it's been offered to idols and you want to buy the meat, basically Paul says, go ahead. He said, that's fine. Because you're not participating in the worship service to the idols. You're not participating in this worship service to these false gods. But apparently in the church at Corinth, there were folks who said, not only is it okay to buy meat from the temple butcher shop, It's also fine to participate in the temple worship services, in the temple feasts. And Paul makes it clear that this is a problem. This is a serious problem. Now, why would this be an issue back then? Well, back then, a lot of the parties or meetings or business gatherings happened at these temples. They had these big rooms like banqueting halls. And so if you wanted to be thought of well in the community, if you wanted to know people in the community, they would go to these feasts. And during these community feasts at the temple, they had these pagan worship services where they offered sacrifices to idols. And Paul says, you can't do that. You can't participate in these sacrificial worship services. And that's what he's addressing in 1 Corinthians 10. All right, now look at 1 Corinthians 10. Look at verses 19 to 21. And I think you'll kind of get the feel for what Paul is saying. Look at verses 19 to 21. He says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Verse 20, no. I'm going to stop there. Paul says the food offered to idols is not anything bad. It's nothing. The actual idol is nothing. Who cares? He's basically saying. He's saying if the temple butcher shop has offered the meat to an idol, it's no big deal. He says it's not, not anything to worry about. You can buy the meat. Let's continue on in verse 20. He says, no. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Verse 21, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Paul is saying this, I don't want you to participate in these pagan sacrificial worship services. I don't want you to eat feasts at the table where these actual worship service of these false gods is happening. Why? 
Because there's demonic stuff going on there. There's demonic stuff happening. Paul is saying, if you participate in these pagan sacrificial worship services and you're eating food in this temple, during the sacrifice, you're participating with demons. Paul is saying there are demons in these pagan sacrificial services, and I don't want you to be participants with demons. So somehow, Paul is saying, eating the food while you're in these pagan sacrificial services, when you're doing this, when you're eating that food during the service, somehow you're opening yourself up to demons. Okay, so Paul is saying, you may think nothing's happening. You may think it's harmless. You may not even feel anything. But what he's saying is it's very dangerous. You're fellowshipping with demons. You're participating. He keeps using that word, participating with demons. So, eat, again, eating and drinking at these tables in these temples, he's, Paul's saying, you're, I'm, I'm trying to say it in many different ways so you understand what, what Paul's saying. He's saying you're intimately associating yourself with these demons. You're opening yourself up to demons influencing your soul. You may think it's harmless. Hey, no, I don't feel anything. Paul says, no, you're allowing demonic forces to tinker with your soul when you're doing this. And look at what Paul says in verse 21. Again, he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Paul here is referring to the Lord's Supper. And Paul is saying you can't take the Lord's Supper. You can't drink of the cup of the Lord or partake of the table of the Lord. You can't take the Lord's Supper and also partake at tables of demons. So Paul is saying if you're a Christian... You're a Christian, if you go to these pagan sacrificial meals, you're fellowshipping with demons. And when you drink the cup at the table, these false gods, Artemis, Aphrodite, whatever, you're intimately participating with demons. You, when you, again, when you put that food in your mouth, you're opening yourself up to being influenced by demons, okay? Now, here's how Paul proves this. Look at verse 16. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. And this is one of the most important verses addressing the Lord's Supper. Verse 16 says this. Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The the bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The way Paul phrases this, he's showing that the church at Corinth knows this. That's why he says, isn't it? And the answer is, yes, of course. Isn't the cup of participation in the blood of Christ? Yes. Isn't the bread of participation in the body of Christ? Of course. Everybody knows that. He's saying that, he's saying, you know this, you know it's true. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying this, and again, he assumes the church at Corinth knows this. It's very important. Paul assumes that the folks in the church there at Corinth understand that when they take the Lord's Supper, they are participating or fellowshipping with Christ in a special way. He's saying, you know this, that when you take the Lord's Supper, you're basically opening yourself up to being influenced by Christ in a special way. Okay? So that's the argument that Paul is making. Now notice this in verse 20. Paul uses this phrase, participants with demons, verse 20. Think about the word, participants with demons. Verse 16, Paul uses similar phrases, participation in the blood of Christ. 
or participation in the body of Christ. In verse 18, I'm not going to get into it, but he says that the people of Israel who ate sacrifices, they were somehow participating with the altar. So you keep hearing this word. Your, your translation may say communion or fellowship or something like that. ESV says participation. The word that is translated here, participation, in verse 16 is a well-known Greek word, and it's this, koinonia. Koinonia. Everybody ever heard of that word, koinonia? Common word. It's translated, as I said, with participation or fellowship or communion. In fact, that's why some people call the Lord's Supper communion, because we have this koinonia, this communion with Christ. So Paul is saying, taking the Lord's Supper, eating the bread, and drinking the wine during a Christian worship service, when this happens, somehow you are participating with the body and blood of Christ. You are somehow in intimate communion, fellowship with the body and blood of Christ. We're intimately fellowshipping with the body and blood of Christ. And what does that mean? When, when, when we hear about the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, as we've talked about, it refers to his death. So what we're saying is when we put the bread in our mouths, we drink the cup in some spiritual way, our souls are getting the benefits of Jesus' death. Okay? I'm going to say it again. When we put the bread in our mouths, when we drink the cup in some spiritual way, our souls are getting the benefits imparted to our souls from Jesus' death. Our souls are, in, the, in the, the London Baptist Confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, they use phrases like this, that during the Lord's Supper, we are nourished. We are fed. We are strengthened. This is what is happening. So the, the confessions understand that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, that something's happening then. So our, our souls are being nourished spiritually. Our souls are being strengthened spiritually because we are in some way intimately fellowshipping with Christ when we partake of the Lord's Supper. We're in fellowship. We're in communion with the, the body and blood of Christ, the, the benefits of of Jesus' deaths in some special way are being imparted to our souls during the Lord's Supper. Now, the reason why I think it's important to think about the whole context, again, of 1 Corinthians 10 is this. When Paul says in verses 20 and 21, I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. When Paul says this, again, Paul is stressing that when you eat those meals at those pagan worship services... When you're participating in that service, you're opening up a door to your soul to allow demons to tinker with your soul. So I believe in verse 16, what Paul is saying, and this is why I think taking the Lord's Supper is so important. I believe what Paul is saying in verse 16 is that when we as the church partake of the Lord's Supper, when we put the bread in our mouths, we put the wine or juice in our mouths, when we partake of the supper, the real presence of Christ is with us in a special way. Remember, Jesus is not here in his human nature. His physical body and blood are not here. But what I do believe is that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, Jesus' divine nature meets with our souls in a special way. We koinonia with him. We fellowship with him. Our souls fellowship with the real presence of Christ in an intimate way. Again, just like what Paul would say, when you go to those pagan things, you may not feel anything. We may not feel anything. We probably don't feel anything when we partake of the Lord's Supper. We may not experience anything special when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Nevertheless, I'm convinced that something very special is happening when it goes on. We are communing with Christ in an intimate way. Our, our, our minds and our, our, our emotions are not the same thing as our soul, okay? 
So we can have things happening to our soul. That's why, again, it's dangerous to, to get around these demons or whatever, what Paul's saying. Because even if we don't think it or feel anything, the demons can tinker with our soul. And I think that in a wonderful, positive way, what Paul is saying that during the supper, something is happening where we're fellowshipping with Christ and, and, and He is growing our souls. Again, even if we don't think it or feel it. I also want to stress this, the Holy Spirit is involved with this in a big way. I don't have time to go into it, but, but Christ is the one who accomplishes redemption, salvation. The Holy Spirit is the one who applies redemption and salvation. So I'm convinced the Holy Spirit is involved in the supper as well. So again, when, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're experiencing this special koinonia, special fellowship, special participation with Christ. We're communing with Him where our souls get the benefits of His death. Again, we can put it this way. During the supper, we open up ourselves in a unique way to the influence of Christ. Something, in other words, something mysterious is happening. That's, again, that's why I appreciate some of the other denominations or views because they understand that something's happening because I think that's what Paul is saying here. I think it's very important. I don't think it's just a rote thing where we remember. I think something big is happening when we partake of the Lord's Supper, a unique way that God nourishes our souls in a special way way okay this is why i think the lord's supper is more than a memory it's a means of grace it's a channel of jesus's grace the lord's supper is intimate communion with him through the work of the spirit where we partake of the bread and the cup so i'm going to wrap up here again jesus is here in a special way when we partake of the lord's supper and this is not just my view as i said the confessions understand this our history is Reformed Baptist, but we're also very much in line with Presbyterians. They're, they're in agreement on this. They're in agreement. So this is not an unusual teaching. Okay? So again, I, I'm convinced that, that what Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians 10 is that in a mysterious way, the Lord nourishes our soul during the supper. He grows us in holiness because Christ is here in a special way. And that's the bottom line why I want to take the Lord's Supper every week. And you can see also... Many of us come from Baptist backgrounds, and many of the Baptists hold to a memorial view. If, if all we're doing during the Lord's Supper is a memory, I don't need to take the Lord's Supper. I can remember it by, without taking the Lord's Supper, right? So you can see why churches don't take the Lord's Supper very often. Because you don't need to take it if it's just a memory. But Jesus commands us to take it, and as I said, I think something very special is happening. Grace is being conveyed to our souls. Now, I want to make something clear. It's not saving grace, okay? If you're not a Christian, as we talked about last week, don't come to the table. In fact, I think this is an actual argument for, for why the Lord's Supper is so significant, why I think something special has happened. If you come to the table and you're not a Christian, if you come into that intimate fellowship with Christ but you're not trusting in Him, then you're really playing with dynamite because something special is happening. As we saw last week in 1 Corinthians 11, you don't come to the table if you're not a Christian, and you don't come and have this intimate fellowship with Christ in an unworthy manner. If you do, as Paul says, you're eating and drinking God's disciplining judgment on yourself. But if you're a Christian, if you see what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, that the bread and the cup are a way of fellowshipping with Christ in an intimate way, my thing is, don't you want to take the Lord's Supper every week? I do. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, we read this all the time. Paul, Paul also writes, he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup. 
He doesn't say, as seldom as you eat this bread and drink the cup. Now, again, there's no command to take this every week. But Jesus does say, do this in remembrance of me. He commands his followers to do this, to partake of the Lord's Supper. And I've mentioned before, it's a mystery to me why so many churches seem to be looking for reasons to avoid taking the Lord's Supper when Jesus says to do it. I also mention this, if the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, if it's a way that Christ strengthens his people, maybe one of the reasons the church is so weak and worldly today is because the church rarely takes the Lord's Supper. Maybe that's one reason. Again, it's not the only reason, but maybe that's one reason. But for us, I would just ask this. I'm wrapping up now. Don't you want a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ? Don't you want more intimacy with Him? Don't you want to know Him and love the Lord more than you do right now? Don't you want to grow in holiness and to glorify God and love Him more? Don't you want to know His love in a deeper way? If that's what you desire, then my encouragement is twofold, and they go together. One is, I've said this many times before, be in church. If it's not this church, be in another church. Be in church every Sunday morning if you can. God, I've, I've said this over and over. Christ has gifts that he wants to give us on Sunday morning when the church gathers. He has gifts he wants to give us. So be there to receive them. In fact, the old timers called this the divine service. The divine service. And it doesn't mean us serving God. What, what great thing can I give to God? What gift can I give to him? Nothing. He has everything. In the divine service, and we do give him praise and honor, but really, it's, that's just an expression of things. In the divine service, what they old-timers meant is that God serves us. He gives us grace. Most of all, he gives himself. That's the greatest thing we need is himself. It's more intimacy with him. So my encouragement, even if this is not the church for you, find a church and be there as often as you can. God strengthens his people. He nourishes his people. And then two, it it's, goes part and parcel with this. Join us each, each week as we partake of the Lord's Supper. I, I'm convinced God uses it in a huge, huge way. Listen, if you have any questions or a small church, feel free to come talk to me. I'm glad to talk about this. I've been wrestling with this a long time, and I enjoy talking about it. But as I said, the bottom line is I want all of us to know Jesus Christ more to love him more, to grow in obedience, to grow in joy, to grow in intimacy with the Lord. And I believe that the Lord has ordained the Lord's Supper as a means for us to do that. Amen. Let's pray. Father and our God, we love you and praise you, Lord. I know that a lot of this was real complicated. I pray that you'd grant clarity to folks. If nothing else, Lord, I just, if nothing else, I pray that that we would see that you're glorious and you want us to be in close fellowship with you. And I pray that, that people will also understand that taking Lord's Supper is a way that you meet with our souls in a special way. So Jesus, we, we praise you. You are a resurrected king. You're the risen king. Meet with us, Lord. Grow us. Help us as a church to grow in love for one another in hospitality, and in, in caring for one another, and most of all, in love and faith to you. We would glorify you, Lord. Draw us near to you, we pray. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.